Welcome to the Design Doc Podcast, the podcast that shows you how experienced professionals launch their own projects. Today's guest is Barry Rowe. Barry's an Android developer by day and an indie game developer by night. He's also a prominent figure in the Louisville, Kentucky game developer space, and I believe he's on the board for a game developer-focused co-working space in downtown Louisville. Is that right, Barry? Uh, yeah, that's correct. Great. Well, thanks again for joining me for this episode of Design Doc. No problem. Welcome to be here. So if you want to start, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, how long you've been doing um, software or game development, uh, and, and what you're working on right now? Uh, sure. Yeah. So I've been a software developer for 12 or so years at this point. Um, it's really been the last four years that I started working on games. Um, as a day job, I, I do mobile development. I'm primarily working in Android these days, but I've gone from Java backends to front-end web work, mobile work, hybrid apps, just kind of all over the place doing line of business type stuff. Um, but in my spare time, I started about, uh, like I said, four or five years ago, I feel like. I've lost track of that time, really. But um, uh teaching myself how to make games because uh, it was always something I wanted to learn how to do um, but it's I think a lot of people have this experience like even when they learn how to program it feels like making games is out of reach but it turns out it's just kind of code like everything else there's a lot more to it but you can just pick it up and learn it so that's what I've been trying to do uh, and myself and uh, my partner Loy Lee uh, goes by Loyal Mix on all of his online stuff, uh, Twitter and such. Um, started a small studio called Roaring Cat Games uh, just to release our games under. So we've been making small games and trying to make more and more stuff, hopefully things that are fun. Yeah, so I also have had a desire for a while to make um, a video game. And by for a while, I, I mean like 13 or 14 years. <laughs> Um, I, I feel like a fairly confident developer, but the idea of a video game just intimidates me from spriting to even worse for me, 3D models or anything like that. Um, but it's it's important, I think, that you mentioned you have a team uh, and you said Lloyd was helping you with some of that stuff. So what's what's his role? I assume you don't do everything yourself and just have Lloyd help publish the game. Uh, yes. So um, I do all the programming. Um, and Loy does all of the art and uh, kind of um, visual mar uh, marketing material. Any anything that looks good, that's him. Uh, anything that's uh, behind the scenes, that's me. Uh, that's kind of how we look at it. Cool. Okay, that makes sense. And I guess that could be, in a way, comparable to like... Um back-end development versus designers and in, in like the web world right uh yeah it's very very similar to that um especially the way we work i mean especially in the indie world a lot of developers will cross roles a lot because uh we're all just kind of doing this with what we've got money isn't a lot of that um so a lot of people just kind of take on different roles but we we've been lucky enough to have a pretty um set he, he's working on the visuals and making sure things look and, and feel good. Uh, and I'm making sure things work. So the part that really interests me about this is, is what the technology and the processes and tools and things like that that you use, um, as well as like the ways you cut corners to make a, a personal project of yours, something that you can regularly ship games, features, upgrades, DLC, etc. So if you're interested, like let's pick one of the games, at least for now, uh, that you've developed. Um, and just let's talk a little bit about the technology that you use. Sure. So we can talk about uh, what we've been working on most recently, which is a game we're calling Car Core, which is it's a little puzzle game about a car putting along in an environment. You got to figure out how to get it across to the finish line. And we are using we are using Unity for this one. For a long time, we were we were using a a library and not really a framework called libgdx, which is Java-based. We switched over to Unity for GarCore because a lot of other people use it. Uh, porting to all the different platforms is 
way simpler. Um, you can get two more platforms if we ever decide to do that, um, or are lucky enough to get on those platforms. And there's a visual editor for all of the uh, UI and in-game scene editing, uh, which is a huge win for for Loy because before, um, w- without something like that, you end up basically writing a bunch of magic numbers like, okay, I need this, talking back and forth, like I need this image to be 437 pixels wide so that it'll fit in the game properly. There, there's a lot of weird math coming along if, if you don't have something that can just visually lay things out for you. And Unity has a super powerful uh, editor and, and so it makes a lot of sense. Okay, yeah, I've heard about Unity before. I haven't looked into it much myself, but something you said uh, caught my attention. You said that you could have two more platforms, um, possibly. How does how does that work? How do you just distribute to more platforms? Um, so with Unity, it's for lack of a better term, it's kind of Unity magic. Uh, so with Unity, they they package their whole uh, runtime and and it gets compiled down through through their also, for lack of a better term, their compiler. Um, so if you target iOS, Android, Windows, Linux, Mac, or PlayStation, or Switch, or, or whatever platform you're trying to target, they've done that hard work to make sure that their core engine is compatible, and then we'll, we'll take your game and compile it down to the right binaries for, for those platforms. So they've done the major majority of the work and then you just get to reap those benefits awesome that sounds insanely helpful that was one of the things that um i can't remember the studio's name but i I know that they uh released a game that was um kind of like a turn-based rpg that was written all in react Um, and one of the big wins for them besides knowing the technology was also just the portability of it so I think it shipped as like an Electron app and they had that freedom. Yeah. And that's uh, that's kind of common across the major engines um, as uh, that a lot of indie developers use. Uh, Game Maker is a huge one uh, that a lot of people use and it also does handles that kind of same thing, kind of the same uh, platform targeting aspect. Um, and, and like I said, this... That is the key reason we moved off of what we were using before, which was libgdx, which had Mac, Linux, PC, um, and then the mobile iOS and Android platforms. But uh, you, their targeting console from from a libgdx game just isn't going to happen. Yeah, that's mostly just a, a library for graphics rendering, right? Right. It kind of sets on top of uh, LWJGL, which is a lightweight Java. Uh, graphics library um and so on top of that the libgdx community um they built all these utilities for quickly making a game um and it's not really an engine um like unity where you know the they've got the way you build things and has to be this way and then they can handle those cross-platform compilations uh so that's that's kind of where that sticking point comes you get a lot more uh, flexibility on how you build your game. Uh, like if you really like the code of creating all the stuff in a game, uh, it's going to feel better, but you lose that flexibility of exporting. So if someone was starting out with a game, um, would they, like let's say a 2D platformer, uh, not that that's a simple type of game to make, but I feel like it's a very like well-known genre with like limitations. It's a common like starting point. Everybody knows what, yeah. it, what it's going to feel like. Would you recommend using libgdx or some um, other tool to get started? Um, I I think my recommendation would be to use whatever you're most comfortable with. What if you're not comfortable with anything? Uh, I would say pick something like Unity or Game Maker or Godot or even Unreal maybe. Um, I don't have a lot of experience on that end to say if it's good starting out. Um, but I would pick something bigger if you really don't know where to start um, just because the resources out there for getting started are 
way easier to find and more up to date. Yeah, I suppose in a, in a way that's similar to like choosing um, React over uh, some really small library in the front end world. Like there's going to be blogs and, and a support system and tutorials and stuff like that. Right. So that makes that makes a lot of sense. So uh, I haven't done any Unity development, so humor me on on this if I sound stupid at any point. Um, but I guess that's also a part of the podcast is to to learn new things from people who know know more about it than me. Yeah, that's what this job is, feeling stupid about 80% of the time. <laughs> <laughs> I think Stack Overflow is a, a huge help at making us feel stupid. Yeah. So so Unity gives you uh, like the framework to use. I think you can write in C-sharp. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's primarily C-sharp these days. I think they've discontinued their um, JavaScript support. Um, they used to have that, but I, th- I think nobody uses it anymore, and it may be completely gone. Um, that shows you how much I've looked into that part. <laughs> Are there okay? So so C sharp sounds like what you use for most of your games, then. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, are there other alternatives? Like if I wanted to, uh, if I wanted to use a library in C, like can I write some some C code that like reaches out to that library, or how, how would I do that? Um, that's something I've, I've never done before. Um, the answer is yes, I believe you can do that. Um, I, I believe there's a way to make any, well, there's always a way to make it work. Um, now, what kind of compatibility you're going to get when you start trying to target different platforms or something like that um, is questionable. Um, I'm not really sure if I can answer that question directly. Um, that's actually a, a something I've never needed to do um, because everything is available that I've needed so far in in the core engine, or uh, there's an asset available for it, or someone has tackled that problem in a way that doesn't require some external binary. Um, so I don't have a super exciting answer for you on that one. Yeah, no worries. An answer in general is just exciting. So. Um, <laughs> What I, what I gleaned from that is that it might not be a very common thing to do or it might not be necessary. So that, that gives me uh, the insight to know maybe I should look for an alternative instead of calling out to some other unsupported programming language. Right. And, and if you really need to do something like that, I would probably take a look at uh, something like some of the, some of the VR plugins um, because I'm certain that they're having to do something along those lines. Um, uh, it's just been packaged for you uh, by either Unity as a company or or someone who's already had to solve that problem. So, and a lot of those packages are available to where you can see sources. So you might you might dig around and, and be able to find it if you really need to do that kind of thing. That's awesome. Uh, the fact that something so like so prominent in the industry is available where you could like peruse the source code. Not only as a game developer, but that could be very informative uh, just as a software developer in general. Yeah, uh, and I think uh, I haven't looked a ton at it. I think they open sourced the entire Unity code base. I don't think you're free to use it, like copy it, but I, I think you can see it. Um, but I. I I don't know what state it's in, if it's like the 2017 version and, and latest is not available or, or what what that looks like at the moment. So, okay, so they probably have a license in place that prohibits you from like you forking Unity uh, that is to, to like copy the source code and make your own modifications on top of it. Right, I, I, I believe it's, it's open source, but not free use. Uh, so speaking of licensing, how do you how do you license your game? What does that look like? Is does Unity try to like tell you how your game is licensed, or can you like slap an Apache license on it, or a Creative Commons, or, or how does that work? Um, so the code you write is is licensed uh, however you like. So I uh, we have a handful of uh, small games that we've created over uh, like game jam weekends and things that are out on public repos and. I don't think we've actually put a license in them because it's a 
24 hour whirlwind when we're doing it, but they're essentially free for anybody to take and use. Um, so the code you write is, is distributed however you like, uh, you licensing for, um, for using unity and publishing games that you're making money on, uh, becomes a different thing. Um, we don't make hardly any money on our games right now. Uh, so we can still get by on the unity free license. Um, I forget the cap. Uh, I, th- I it's different between unreal and unity and I, I forget the numbers, but there's a certain cap about basically, uh, if you release a game and you make a certain amount of money, um, once you've made that much money, you have to purchase the higher rate uh, Unity license, which is, from a developer standpoint, that's perfectly fine with me. If I'm making that much money, I'm glad to give a little bit of money to the people who made it possible. So That's a good way to look at things. Uh, I know that um, for some reason, the developer community seems really divisive on that. Some people want to save all their dollars and do things themselves. And, and maybe some people just want to do it themselves for the experience. And I, I totally get that. Mm-hmm. But also the idea of saying like, hey, I know that these people, there are developers that work on this game engine, just like I'm a developer that works on my game. Here, have some money because you help make a dream possible. Right. So with with the idea of uh, like starting out for free, I, I find that a really valuable thing. Um, so... It, it kind of plays into the mantra of like fail fast and fail often, um, specifically on the fail fast side. No one wants to fail, but there's a chance that you make a game that's not anything special. And and especially, it might be special to you, but if you're trying to like market it and sell to other users, it might not be their cup of tea. Um, so that, that licensing pattern is really nice because it allows you to leverage their tools to build something quick. And then once it becomes successful, then you like, you kind of have to chip in. That way, there's no upfront cost. I guess the the barrier to entry is really low. Right. Yeah. It it makes it really really friendly to just get up and and try something. Um. And and to your point, like, just just a heads up for anybody who's like, hey, I'm gonna go make this game. It's gonna be fantastic. Um. Not to be dismissive, but the first several games you make are not gonna be good. Um. At the, I'm not sure we've made a good game yet. Um, they're they're fun for us, uh, and some people like them. But making games is hard, so uh, it's it's really nice to be able to just build them and see what happens, and then uh, worry about um, licensing and stuff when it when it's actually a problem for you. That's a good problem to have. Yeah, and I'll add that I've played the demo of Carcore, and I enjoyed it. I thought it was a fun little game that allowed you to. Uh, kind of push a, an interesting physics engine to its limits. So I think you're you're doing pretty well. Well, appreciate it. Hopefully, once we finally get it, the full thing out there, other people see the same. Cool. We're going to take a quick break. Um, we'll be back in just a few moments, and we'll talk about, um, I guess, coming from a, like a software engineering background and moving into game development and what carries over. And we'll also probably talk about some of the tools that are really common in um, like a, a standard uh, web developer or software engineer workspace and if they exist in game development as well. Hey, we're back. Did you miss us? Um, so I just wanted to add something that I forgot to mention earlier. We've talked a lot about several different libraries, technologies, and and even some of Barry's games at this point. I'll be sure to include links for all of these in the show notes so you can check them out. So Barry, we're going to jump straight back into it. So one of the things that seem really prevalent, um, it seemed really prevalent in college and then didn't seem prevalent for quite a while afterwards was the idea of design patterns. Um, Are there any like design patterns that you use when building games? Is that a thing? How does, how does that work? Uh, is chaos a design pattern? Um, but no, uh, yes, there, there, there are definitely some patterns, um, and and ways to, to make building things easier. Um, I'm not sure I'm a, I'm an expert by any means. Um, but from when I started to now, one of, one of the best, uh, one of my favorite 
ways to structure uh, games is using something called uh, what what people call an entity component system, um, and and I won't really go into it too big too too much. Um, but the idea is you've got a series of of systems that act on entities, and basically everything's an entity. And then you've got components, which are just data bags. Um, and systems know how to process the data on your components. And entities are handed off to these systems based on the components that they have. Uh, it makes it really modular. Um, and it's it's the easiest way I've seen so far um, to make writing game logic and uh, not get scattered and keep things focused. So a system only knows how to do what it's supposed to know, doesn't need to know about everything else. Can you give an example of like a, a system, a component, and an entity? Sure. So um, so a system might be like a movement system. Um, and so you might have an entity that is just a, a player entity uh, or a player object, and it's an entity. And it has a transform component and maybe a uh, velocity component. And so the movement system can then process the transform, which would be where it's at, position, rotation, that kind of thing, um, and its current velocity, uh, and and apply that to know where it should move on the screen next. So that move system is only worried about where you're at, how fast are you going, where you're going to be next. And, and it can make that small update. Okay, so yeah, that's uh, way more low level than I originally thought. <laughs> so that's that's good to know. Um, I was imagining like a, a component uh, in that example, or actually, sorry, an entity in that example being like an instance of like a car and then like the systems being the physics engine and then like the component being, I guess, just like the state of the game and, and data regarding like the current car position and things like that. Right, yeah, it's uh, it's, kind it's that's that's not too far off really just it gets a little more fine-grained because you want your systems to act on uh, they need to know the details to be able to move things around or, or transform things or, or do whatever they're going to do something that we haven't talked on much and i think we're still using car core as an example for the most part um that's a, a 2d game right it is yeah okay um, and, and in a way, I guess a platformer might be the appropriate platformer puzzle, maybe. Yeah, it's a so we've been calling it a physics puzzler because um, it's it's probably closer to Angry Birds style than it is a platformer. But you have platforms and and obstacles and things like in a platformer. So it lives in it. Uh, it's compared most often to a game called Incredible Machines, I believe is what the game was called, um, which is uh, this game about making Rube Goldberg machines. That sounds like fun. Yeah. So you mentioned a couple different games right there. Uh, that poses an interesting question. Do you get inspiration from other games? Like, what do you? What do you? I assume you're a gamer as well. What do you play in your spare time to um, inspire? Uh, so. I I play I do play a lot of games. Um, I tend to these days I tend to play a lot more board games than I do video games. Um, but uh, as far as as far as video games, all right, I've been playing a lot of Magic Arena, um, and I've been playing uh, most recently. I've been playing the Untitled Goose Game, which is fantastic. We picked um, that up on Switch and. Um, I think it changed my girlfriend's opinion on geese. She used to hate them, and now I think she hates them a little less. So, <laughs> yeah, it's 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 super fun, uh, uh, and um, I I tend to play a lot of um, when when I play play games. I, I tend to play a lot of uh, team competitive games. So I, I played League for a while. I, I played uh, Heroes of the Storm for a, a good while. Um, Overwatch, uh, and then kind of, kind of a lot of the, the uh, quick deathmatch style Source Engine stuff. Um, but like I said, I've been playing a lot more board games recently, so.
I know that our, our talk is about uh, Roaring Cat games, and I, I do want to get right back to that, but I do have a very important question. Have you tried Wingspan yet? I haven't. Um, I see everybody talking about it, and I, I don't know much about it, but I've seen everybody saying it's fantastic. So um, Yeah, it, it's a fun little engine builder uh, game that is accessible by just about everyone. Um, so whether you're a hardcore gamer or a casual one, it feels like there's something for just about anyone. That sounds sounds perfect. And that's my sales pitch. <laughs> um, okay, cool. So back to Roaring Cat Games and, and the actual topic at hand. Um, so you mentioned that uh, entity-based pattern. Um, that makes sense to me. That seems like something that is more focused on real-time applications with like uh, constant re-renders and like a game loop. So I don't know if that mm-hmm. seems particularly portable to the web world, but um, I like the idea behind it. Yeah. So, uh, so one, one of the things I noticed, uh, so I started, I started making games and came super familiar with the game loop concept, basically, uh, update, render, repeat, update, render, repeat. Um, I mean, there's a whole lot more going on in the back end, but that's basically it. You've, you've got your state, it comes in, you update the next state, and you render the next version of the screen. And that's happening 60 plus times a second, ideally. Um, and then in the web world, Redux comes along, um, and it feels so much like a game loop. Um, I, and for a while, I was really excited about it. Uh, so Redux is the... Uh, React library, the React JS library for um, like global state management, right? Uh, yes. It holds all of the data like above your application and or at the top level of your application and lets it trickle down, and then like uh, single things cause re-renders in that case. Like you, you have actions that mutate that data in the store. Right. Yeah. So, so if you if you think of if you, if you look at it as uh, as a game loop, it really feels like you've got this this whole state of the application, and any little thing could change, and then flow into your update, which should update the pieces of your screen, which have have moved, which could be your player moving, uh, next animation frame, um, particle effects, whatever, um, and then that just keeps happening over and over, and you take input from the user, update state, keep going. Um, so that's a, it, it's interesting that, uh, I guess it's Redux is the React library, uh, the flux pattern is, is what it implements, I guess. And it became this whole thing in the web world and, uh, everything just started feeling like game loops to me, um, which has its strengths and weaknesses on the web, uh, versus in a game, I think, but. Yeah, I I would definitely agree with that, especially with like uh, browsers, certain browsers limiting re-renders and and just the way that like re-renders work in general. Um, being a little aggressive with your mutations to uh, or not mutations, sorry, your uh, changes to the data in your Redux store could be uh, very negatively impacting the amount of renders in your application. <laughs> right, and and. When you start getting into animations, that becomes uh, yeah. Uh, what, um, what does your state look like uh, for animate? Uh, but that's that's a whole separate discussion. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's like an eight episode yeah. podcast <laughs> on its own. Uh, that might be the next one that I, I start is how the hell do you animate in the middle of Redux? Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, I like Redux for what it's worth. Um, uh, please don't send hate mail to me for not talking nicely about it so there's uh there's like a standard idea of software development or programming or coding whatever you want to call it um and it's uh i guess it's the idea that you see from like large companies like facebook and google and stuff like that regarding patterns and tools and stuff like that um wow i've said that a lot uh so does any of that stuff carry over to game development? We talked a little bit about design patterns, but um, what about some of the other things? 
So, uh, so yeah, uh, I think I think a lot of it does. Um, a lot of it sometimes feels like it doesn't to me um, when I'm in the middle of writing something that I've never written before, uh, just because if it, it feels so different when you're worried about like, is all of this going to happen in 16 milliseconds, right? Um, that's that's a huge constraint that you just don't live in in most uh like corp corporate business software development world i mean there there are people who are having to deal with that level of performance on a lot of the a lot of their applications but for the most part if you're right in the front end you don't have to worry about that so much um so sometimes it feels like uh it's a totally different world and and none of the things really work because you need to do it more efficient um, but I mean, all of the simple stuff, just structuring your code well, uh, trying to decouple things so that you're not, um, you don't end up with this unrefactorable nightmare, um, and keeping, keeping things as simple as you can. Um, uh, like those, those are three big, uh, I guess not mantras, but like ideas that come from everyday software development that definitely pertain to to games i mean anything that anything that you would do to write normal code uh in in business applications um is probably applicable to game code to some extent um naming conventions uh function size uh you you can unit test stuff uh, it doesn't have to be uh, all tied to the engine. You can write standalone logic. Um, all of the, all of that stuff will help. Um, but I think it's also important to note that in the the end goal is some creative thing, and whatever you got to do to make it work is the important part. Uh, something I. I I've heard, I don't remember where I heard it from now. I wish I remembered, but like it was basically the concept. You only get so many games you can build in your life. So just make them, just, just build them, uh, learn how to make them easier as you go, but just get them out there. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. That's a really big inspiration for this podcast in general was, um, it's, it's mostly themed on personal projects that people are working on and the steps and, and shortcuts they take to just ship something. Um, I spent many years, uh, as an early developer, uh, teeter tottering between imposter syndrome and overconfidence. But during the overconfidence times, I, I felt like I should have like pushed so much stuff out and I never did. Uh, I had a couple ideas for apps. I finally ended up building a meteor JS app, um, I guess maybe five years ago. Uh, and it was so small and it was, it was nothing impressive either. Um, but I, I don't know, I guess I was intimidated by the fact that I didn't have a company as a support system or a product owner giving me guidance or anything like that. So, um, it's, it's always inspiring and, and mostly the point of the podcast to hear people talk about that type of stuff. Yeah. And, and it's, uh, it's totally different when, when you're you're the main consumer of the code base right and you know what you're willing to live with so you've only got yourself to hurt uh but if it gets it there faster and you can live with it that's okay yeah i joked in our last episode with uh matt balmer when we were talking about dungeon pad that you you are your own linter, right? Like you don't need a linter if it's just you because you're your linter. You know right. what looks good and what doesn't. Okay, so you mentioned unit tests. Um, that's an area of interest for me. Uh, I write a lot of unit tests on a, on a weekly basis and um, am curious to know from a game developer point of view, how do you, how do you write tests? All right, so you definitely pull that out there. Uh, and, and I will say you can write tests. Um, and I've looked into it several times. I have never written a test for any of my games. <laughs> Would you say uh, that that helps you ship code quicker because you're not worried about like writing tests and you, you just, 
as the only person touching the code, you have a good idea of like what changes will break things. Um, I think uh, for for the small games that we have gotten out there, uh, yeah, I, th- I think unit tests I don't think would have really done anything except for make me feel better about. Um, oh man, look how cool it is! I've even got unit tests for this code. Um, for Carcor, uh, there's some, definitely some areas where I wish at this point we had some test coverage, but uh, also I should note that Carcor, uh, while we have released a couple other Unity games in the, the mean uh, since we started it, um, it was our first foray into using Unity, so all of the original architecture is just a, uh, a bit of a mess. Um, so I'm slowly pulling it out um and and if i find time i might might start writing some tests but uh i I think for the most part it's unless you're on a team and other people are dependent on your components working and everybody's agreed on it uh it's not a it's not something that i would really worry about in games um there's folks not not to mention there's so much floating point math that you probably pull your hair out anyway yeah, you mentioned uh, the words "if I have time," um, which I, I find resonates really, really well with me as well. Um, I go to a coffee shop every Thursday and work on something. Uh, for a very long time, it's been um, a React front end over a Go GraphQL API uh, for a tool that helps writers leverage machine learning to write their best uh, novel yet. It's not out, so if anyone gets excited about it, follow <laughs> along, and I'll let you know when it actually is out. But um, I have a Trello board for my work and it's not super full because I'm not a product person and I just put things in as they come to mind. But I've the longest story that I have in the to-do list has been refactor um, some Go resolvers to use a new pattern that I really like. That's the thing though. Like I work in this on my spare time. So do I allocate my couple hours a week to doing something that I really like? Or do I allocate my couple hours a week to uh, like doing something that helps me get this project closer to shipped. Right. Yep. That is a, that is a constant struggle. We have a, a similar Trello board situation uh, and our backlog is full of things that say, Hey, we should change how this works. Hey, we should change how this works. We should change how this works. But all those things currently work uh, and no playtesters have, complained about them, so they still sit there. It's so funny because at work, I I hate hearing the, like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it saying, but I basically live and die by that with personal projects because if it ain't broke and I am fixing it, I'm not shipping new ideas. Right. (laughs) In the realm of tests, and I mentioned linting, um, which is not a huge thing, uh, do you have a, a build pipeline? How do you, like, is there like a Jenkins or Travis continuous integration server that produces binaries for you or APKs? How does this work? So uh, we we don't have that. Um, you can build it. There's, uh, so for, for Unity specifically, um, because this changes depending on what, what your engine looks like um, for sure. But for Unity specifically, um, there is kind of a challenge uh, because whatever server is running this build has to have Unity installed, um, and there uh, be beyond some licensing issues with doing that. I think you have to have a certain level of licensing to be able to run a uh, a build server like that um, publicly. Uh, Beyond that, it just the whole setup uh, is is a bit of a bear. Um, so what we've done instead is you can write your own. Uh, I forget the name of it, but uh, it's it's essentially a uh, an editor script for Unity that will it just kind of scripts out the pressing of the buttons inside of Unity. So we have a menu item in our game. We can go up and say, hey, build everything. And it'll produce an APK, uh, a Mac app, uh, a Linux zip, uh, 
a zip for Windows and an iOS project. Um, and so then from there we can we can push those to what we need to push it to. So we've we've automated some of the building because it's available to us locally, but we don't have have a, a normal CI pipeline. Gotcha. So uh, for anyone listening that may, may not be aware, an APK is an Android package. Um, so those are the types of uh, apps that get installed onto Android phones. There are a couple other alternatives like Android app bundles, uh, but an APK is still pretty commonplace. I'm kind of shocked, honestly, that Unity doesn't provide like a software as a service as a CI tool. Uh, so they do. Uh, there is, I think you have, you have, um, you have the option for, uh, cl- I think it's, they just call it cloud build. Um, you can, uh, you can, if that's wrong, uh, you can throw it in the show notes that I got that totally wrong. Um, <laughs> but they have a service that if you have a pro or higher license, you can use, um, and for us right now, it just hasn't been worth it to pay that licensing f- solely for the cloud build. Uh, we get by on what we're doing now um, without much problem, so uh, it hasn't been a, a need for us. But it is out there. Uh, there are solutions for doing it. Um, we just haven't needed it at this point. Okay. Uh, one more question for you, and then we'll take another break. Um, so... How long does it take to uh, run that Unity script and, and actually produce like all of your shippable um, executables? I think it takes uh, with the iOS one takes the whole, like fifty percent of the time. I think it takes probably ten minutes. So there is a, a there is a there is a ten minute time where I'm just twiddling my thumbs waiting on unity when i create a build yeah that definitely seems like a a case where cloud build uh makes a lot of sense and and for like um massive games built in unity i I can't even imagine oh yeah yeah for uh for sure because uh once you get into thing we're just doing a 2d game right now right and once you get into things like having to bake lighting and um just process, do all, all any of the pre-processing stuff that you might want to do in uh, 3D games or or more complex, uh, visually more complex games. Uh, yeah, it's going to just get longer and longer. All right. Well, we will take a break really quick, um, and then we will be back in just a few minutes, and we'll uh, probably wrap this up trying to be cognizant of your time and talk about just some of the issues you've ran into um, and then I guess the publication process a little bit and just a couple more questions um, around that. Looking forward to it. And we're back. Okay, so we're just going to dive straight into these uh, next set of questions. Feel free to answer however you'd like. Uh, none of them are meant to be like prying or anything. Um, but it is one of the areas that interests me the most. So, so every project seems to run into issues from time to time. Have you encountered anything major or that felt like it was a showstopper or any any real pain to work around? Um, yeah. So uh, it's not actually a technical problem that we're having right now. Uh, but, uh, game design is a super hard thing. Um, so we've, we've had the game in a really nice working state. Uh, we have most of the systems ready to go. Um, and now we need to build a bunch of levels, um, beyond where we're already at. And we're starting to, we're starting to, uh, kind of, slow down in our creative uh process um so that that's been the biggest hurdle um and and i i do think one of the problems that we have is uh could be could be attributed to a technical problem is that when we go to build a new level um we 
never invested in building the editor extensions that would be really nice for us to have to build new levels quickly. So it takes a long time to build a level just to find out it's no fun. Um, so it would have been nice if we, if we had thought ahead um, and built some better tooling for us uh, to, to like quickly whip up levels. Interesting. Uh, that also kind of reiterates on a point from earlier, the idea of like fail fast and fail often. So if the level is not fun, like spending a lot of time making a level only to test it and find out it's not fun is probably a, a real letdown. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's never good when you have to scrap a whole level because um, especially when you're only working, you know, one or two nights a week and you spend half a night building out a level and you play it and you're like, well, there's only one way to be like, that was easy. That, that was not satisfying. <laughs> guess we'll start again. Yeah, and on that note, the progression of difficulty and things like that are another thing that it sounds like you factor in whenever you're talking about level design. Um, and that's like it's just something that uh, as a non-game developer, um, but like a, a software engineer, you never want things to be difficult. So like you never think of ways for things to be challenging. Like I don't want a user to have to click through four modals to like submit a form. That's not a fun challenge. And and then on, at that note making the challenge fun as well. Um, that's, it's interesting to hear. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a whole, uh, it's, it's an eye opening thing. Um, when you start to go try to make a game and realize like, well, this isn't fun or, or that didn't, that's not even close to what I thought people would do. Um, it's as scary as some of the technical stuff was when I first started, like, I don't know how to make games that the code's going to be so hard. Uh, that's by far the easiest part of making games um, is is figuring out how to make things do stuff um, code-wise. Uh, the hardest part is designing fun stuff, uh, finding people to play your game, and marketing, um, which which is its whole that's a whole other podcast. Yeah, that definitely is. And that might actually be one that comes out um, like a, a marketing from a software engineer's point of view. I've really I've done a lot of that really recently and have really enjoyed it. Um, so maybe maybe one day there will be some content there. So with. Um, so the idea is to have like uh, Destiny 2 levels of a player base like people that are highly dedicated to your game and in and, and the millions. Um, so do you get user feedback to help you achieve like that goal or, or push towards that goal? Or how do you, how do you hear what users think about your game? Um, so for the f handful that we've released out there, it's primarily we don't. Um, if people write a, a review on Google or Apple uh, on, on the Play Store or the App Store, um, the will know um but other than that we just uh, we assume people aren't playing them um but while we're building a game uh one some of the best some of the best motivation for keeping going is going showing the game at events um something like the little arcade expo or maker fairs um or if, if we just have uh uh, Louisville Makes Games hosts playtest nights on a semi-regular basis. Um, just having people come in and play the game and just watching what they do. Um, especially little kids, uh, because they're super honest and they will tell you if, if something is not good. Um, adults are much more likely to tell you, oh, this is pretty nice, I'd, I'd buy this, uh, whether they like it or not. But a kid is, is going to they're going to laugh or they're going to put the thing down in 30 seconds and move on, uh, which is helpful either way. Yeah. I wish there was a way to get more uh, like a, a younger audience to test most like web and software apps for the same reason. It's, <laughs> it's hard to get, uh, or hard to feel like you've got a genuine opinion on a lot of things. Yeah, that's, that's true. So you mentioned marketing, um, and, you can definitely save that for another podcast in another life. But 
Uh, I am curious, how, like, do you take any efforts to acquire new users to play your games? Like any marketing on the Play Store or Google ads or Facebook ads or anything? Uh, to, so far, we have not. Um, the most we do is uh, we, have a, we have a mailing list that I think we've only sent out one time um, to, to, to a handful of people. Um, and really it's just kind of Twitter and Facebook every now and then for events, uh, or announcing that we've released something, um, from everything that we've read, like targeted ads on Facebook or, or Twitter or, or most of the, um, most of the platforms just don't, don't work. Um, at least at the scale for we're looking at um, that we can afford. Um, so right now we're really just focused on making the best game we can, and then uh, we're going to try uh, really posting it in some some places on Reddit, uh, uh, different online communities, and just try to get some people playing it. Uh, reach out to some um, YouTubers. And hopefully the right person sees it, and then a bunch of people happen to find it. Uh, that's that's our our our, our best hope right now uh, with the time and resources that we've got for putting into marketing. That marketing pattern that you mentioned, posting on Reddit, that's fairly common. But like uh, trying to get your like no one, maybe not no one, but most people don't try to get their web app in front of a, like a YouTuber. So they can like, I don't know, click through like some management platform or something. <laughs> right. So that, that definitely feels unique to game development. Twitch plays business apps. Yeah. That's the next, that's the new channel. Well, they did do a Twitch plays like Robin hood, like stock market type uh, thing. Yeah. That's so, true. you know, maybe that's an option, man. Another great segue. Speaking of stocks and money and things like that, do you monetize any of your games? Um, we do a little bit. Uh, so we released the first, uh, quote unquote major release we made, uh, which was this tiny game called galaxy, um, which is, it was like a infinite space shooter, um, just planting trees and stuff in space. Uh, it's kind of like a bullet hell game. Um, we tried ads for that. Uh, we made to date i think we are up to a dollar 92 so that did fantastically um for the next handful of games i think we just released them for free because the ads the time it took to develop the ad support um in libgdx at the time versus the payoff was just not worth it so hey let's just see if people like our games um with carcore uh, we are putting it on itch.io um, and there's a demo available now uh, and we have, I mean, it's been the most successful, honestly. Uh, we put it in a few bundles um, so people will pick up the demo from those bundles uh, and we get a little bit of money from that. Um, and then when we put it on the, the app stores, we are going to go with freemium again. Um, but the in-app purchases are going to be uh, basically a tip to the developers. We're just going to try that. Um, a, we are going to put ads in it again. Um, we're going to try that a second time. Uh, an in-app purchase to turn off the ads and then uh, just cosmetic things. Uh, it's really just buying. If you want to pay a buck for some cash to open unlock skins because we have some skins in the game that's an interesting approach too and, and I, I really like the idea of uh like hey if you liked our game like it was free you can give us a tip if you want we'd appreciate it um it, it kind of goes back to what we mentioned earlier about like you know if if you enjoy uh the free product like you know chip in throw a little bit back to the person that made it right so, okay, um, another quick question for you. What's the indie game dev community like? Are there meetups or like uh, anything like that? Uh, funny you should ask that, Brad. 
there are by, <laughs> uh, but yes, uh, there are meetups. Um, it's fantastic. I should start off with, uh, there's a ton of people building, um, super interesting stuff, uh, in our area. Uh, and to be clear, I'm talking about the Louisville, Southern Indiana, uh, Kentuckiana area. Um, and, uh, in Louisville, we have a meetup every first and third Sunday, um, of every month. Uh, so I, th I think this upcoming Sunday, a week from tomorrow, um, at the time of this recording, uh, if I have my calendar right. Um, but, uh, those meetings are free, open to the public and we see all kinds of people coming in, uh, building cool stuff. Um, and it's across the board, uh, small hobby stuff that people are just having fun with, um, big giant projects that people are building for, um, like trying to make this their big first game. Um, and then people have been doing this for, uh, for years and just showing off what, what they're making that right now. So, um, there's a lot of people making games in the area and, um, with the meetups, we're just trying to introduce everybody to everybody else because it's easier to build stuff if you got help. Yeah, and just a support system or other people that are um, doing the same communal struggle, basically. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, if I ever uh, start on the 2D platformer that I've wanted to build for 14 years, um, I will <laughs> definitely attend one of those meetups. Yeah, come on down, show it off, or just see what's uh what other people are doing. Um, so I guess going back to Carcore in particular, I think this would be a good game for this question. Uh, if you could go back and change anything about this project, would you? Um, yes. Uh, uh, we, I mentioned several, or I mentioned that we have several cards <laughs> sitting on our Trello. Hey, we should go back and change this. Um, I would change all of those things. Um, the way we're, uh, the way we're structuring our levels, uh, I would build in tooling uh, for how we build levels faster. Um, and I would probably focus way more on getting um, more levels sooner versus features sooner. Um, one mistake we definitely, I, I, one thing, it, it's really nice that we have a skinning system available already um but that's not necessary to play the game um and we probably should have focused on building levels first and added that later um not probably we should have um and uh just I, I, the there's a ton of code structure things i would do differently now because um, i've learned so much about uh from where i started like i said this was the first thing we built in unity so uh just like the first thing you build in any tool or platform framework, uh, it's it got a little messy at the beginning. Um, and as you figure out what, what does and doesn't work. Yeah, okay. That I mean, that sounds pretty fair, and I feel pretty, um, pretty safe to say the same thing about most of the projects I've worked on, despite not being game dev related. It feels like there's usually a ton of things that I would go back and do again. Right. The The longer you do something, the more you know. And if you don't know it at the beginning, obviously you can't do it. So re starting a project from scratch always feels better than going in and redoing something you've already messed up. So. Yeah, I think that's um, like that perfectionism. Is that a word? Uh, is something that I struggle with. And because of that, I have like uh, a lot of uh, my projects directory on my computer is basically a graveyard with a couple <laughs> caretakers that are alive and well. Um, yeah. Yeah, I know that feeling. Um, I, that's uh, That's been one great takeaway from working on games is going in, I knew I had no idea what I was doing. So my ability to care whether it's perfect has 
has really been able to get out of the way and just make it work uh, to some detriment, but for the most part, it's beneficial. Good. That's, that's a good approach to have. Um, so we've talked a lot about the tools that you've used. Do you have any uh, guides, tutorials, or documentation that you would recommend for people who are interested in getting into game development? Um, so this is, this is probably the most common question um, we get with, uh, with, with running the meetups is how do I get started? Um, and uh, I'm going to miss some of the things we tell people uh, because we tell people a lot of things. Um, but one of, one of the best, one of the things we always say is just, just pick something and start making a game. Um, if you don't know what to pick, um, Game Maker, uh, Unity, Construct, um, those are three, three game making tools that have a ton of free documentation around them. Um, and are easy to pick up, um, relatively easy to pick up, um, and just start making something. Uh, make a box move around the screen. Um, it, the first time you make a box run across the screen and stop when you stop and go the other way, uh, it's, it's it feels great, um, and you're like, oh, I made that happen. I know how that happened. I can I can make anything happen now. Let's just do it. Uh, it really just helps to just get started and not get stuck uh, over designing this massive game because the first thing you make should be tiny and small and it's it's probably going to be uh, really fun to you and and it's probably not going to be a great game, um, but you'll have made it and now you know how to make the next one. Um, and if you're having, having a real hard time just getting started, uh, I would recommend jumping in to a game jam, uh, which is, these, is, these are held all the time by different people, but the big, the big ones are global game jam, which happens in January. Um, and there are ludum, ludum dare or ludum dare, depending on which way you want to pronounce it. They have been three to four times a year, I think. Um, and just finding somebody else and, and for a weekend, you just, you start on a Friday and by Sunday evening, you you build a game. So you don't have time to think about whether it's right or not. You just, you just go for it and build what you can. Uh, I've seen so many people start not knowing what they're doing. Um, and then by Sunday, they're super amazed at what came out of it. Um, they, they, they've made a game. Um, and once you've made a game, you can make another game. That's really interesting to hear and, and a really good point. Um, I have attempted game development a little bit in the past and little things like th that, every time I think about it, blow my mind that I was so excited about uh, were just in, insanely inspiring like like you said being able to move a blue box across the screen or um hitting the space bar and watching the box go up you know one eighth of the screen and then fall back down one eighth of the screen little things like that um and right. it's go ahead yeah it's it's those uh you get it in in other software development those those fist pump or high five or or just like yes it worked moments uh, that are really the best part about the job, that's that feeling. And when that box moves, that's the feeling you get, except it's way better because it's a game and it's more fun. <laughs> yeah, no doubt about that. Um, so I guess uh, my final question for you is if people are interested in following you or your work or Roaring Cat Games, where can they do that? Do you have a GitHub or Twitter handle, a personal website, mailing list, anything like that? Sure. Uh, so for Roaring Cat Games, we have RoaringCatGames.com. Um, that has links to our, our Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, our, our itch pages, all our games, everything. Um, uh, and for myself, I'm Barry Rowe on pretty much everything, I think. 
Uh, but Twitter is probably where I uh, where you'd find me the most. Uh, it's at Barry Rowe, B A R R Y R O W E. And I have a GitHub at the same uh, Barry Rowe, and there's a Roaring Cat Games GitHub as well. So you can actually go uh, fork some of our games and download them and run them if you want. Um, and uh, I should also mention uh, LouisvilleMakesGames.org, which uh, we've talked about a couple times. Um, but if you're interested in the meetups or if you're interested in uh, game development in the Louisville, Kentuckyana area, um, LouisvilleMakesGames.org. Uh, it's a nonprofit, and we're just trying to help people make games in the area. Um, and you can find our information there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again for your time, Barry. Um, I guess this officially wraps up our second episode of Design Doc. I'm your host, Brad Seipert. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Brad Seipert. That's B-R-A-D-C-Y-P-E-R-T. Um, at bradseipert.com. And of course, you can find Design Doc anywhere that podcasts are heard. Thanks for tuning in.